Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Palm. Palm is back and available on Verizon. Palm is a small, practical companion device that syncs your existing smartphone so all your info is seamlessly connected. Palm isn't a replacement for your smartphone, but it has all the same mobility and capability, allowing you to leave your smartphone behind so you can focus on what's in front of you. Go to palm.com to learn more and run to your nearest Verizon store to check out Palm for yourself. I need support staff to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRigger.com and joining me on the other line, he loves to see his name on Deadline.com. It's Andy Greenwald. Ooh, that could go so many different directions. I know. Ooh. That's the, the best comedy is so, so open to interpretation, you know? Dangerous. <laughs> Andy, huge, Dangerous. huge, huge news today. Matt yeah. Smith will co-star with Jared Leto in Sony's Spider-Man spinoff, Morbius. That's that's fair. You got me on that. That's huge. <laughs> What's up, man? How are you doing today? Obviously, everybody, I hope if you're following the Andy Greenwald Chronicles, you know <laughs> that it was announced today that Andy's show Briar Patch, starring Rosario Dawson, will be going to series. It's wild. It's wild. This has been something that I've known for a bit and I was not allowed to talk about it. And I am overwhelmed and overjoyed that it is now public and we can talk about it. And we can say that I'm not at an offsite. I'm calling you from my office because there's a writer's room. Which is down, just a down few, the hall. just a little couple blocks away from where we are, but we're, we're divided by now. You're on the other side of the industry entirely. <laughs> yes. What is, what kind of line is it? It's not the thin blue line of police work. Is it the 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 gaudy velvet rope? The, yeah, it's like the invisible and, wall. Uh, I don't know. It's something like that. And so, Andy, uh, give me like a sense of what's the best like text message message you got today. Well, I think I think there's only one place to go, which is the email from my father taking great <laughs> umbrage at the. Hollywood Reporter article calling the show Sam Esmail's Briar Patch. <laughs> Which, you know, fair, but also that, I am deeply, deeply glad that it is Sam. My, my goal is for it to be Sam Esmail's Briar Patch right up until the point when people like it, at which point it could be mine. But if they don't like it, it can remain Sam, Sam Esmail's that's right. Briar Patch. You were with just an original doing soundtrack, his, his bidding. With an original soundtrack by U2 for perpetuity. <laughs> that, that's what it could be. Now, at the end um, of Briar Patch, do we find out what your Octung yeah. Babies theory is? Yeah, well, that's going to be in the web series. You know, one thing that people don't might not appreciate is for all the good ideas we're coming up with here in the room, like some of them we're just not going to get to. And that's what the web series is for. Now, where the web series will air, I'm not going to share that publicly yet. Like on the web? Rest assured, <laughs> on the dark web, it's going to be on like, yeah, it's going to be on, it's going to be on tour. This is crazy. You've known this about this for time. a while. You've known that this was going to go th forward for a while, but not as long as I've known. Yeah. And it's not you, because I just believed in Andy, which I do. I do believe in Andy, but it was because I was told by uh, the creator and writer of Briar Patch, Sam Esmail. Um, <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> I was told by Sam that this was 99% going to happen and that he wanted to do some kind of, you know, like basically a podcast stunt. He wanted to come on the watch and announce to Andy that his show had been greenlit by by the powers that be at USA and everything. There's, there's one piece of this that I think we also need to lead with, which is that Sam told you this and didn't tell me. So yes. you knew before I did. I did. And also, uh, like I believe Kaya knew before you did. Kaya knew. <laughs> uh, Liz Kelly uh, here at The Ringer knew. I, probably half The Ringer staff... Couple of just random members of the uh, mm -hmm. people who work at Sunset Gower Studios knew before you did. Everyone at the Ringer knew before I did. That's right. Uh, I, be I believe Ringer founder Bill Simmons found out moments before I did. And the most galling thing about, and there are a lot of galling things about this, and I, I shouldn't bury the lead. I believe, and I am appalled, but I believe that the sadists at the Ringer Podcast Network, led by Kaya are going to share the audio of me finding out that my show was greenlit live on mic. Yes. So sure. we had Sam come in for our annual year-end podcast. And at the end of the show, as you guys may remember, if you were very, very avid close listeners, you may remember that it seemed to have somewhat of an abrupt ending. 
the end of our year-end podcast. It was a very long show, a lot of, lot of incredible content in there. But at the end, we wrapped things up somewhat quickly, and there was a reason for that. Yes, and the reason for it was Sam's grand plan. Now, I know that people think that Sam Esmail must be slightly obsessive due to the intricate plotting on such shows as Mr. Robot or Homecoming, that is that you you have no idea because really the only thing that he seems to that seems to motivate him over these past two months has been micromanaging this particular episode of the watch it's been unreal and and i want people to understand that his desire to do this to me on the microphone it didn't just involve telling chris and the ringer support staff first it didn't just involve having executives from usa and the studio ucp hidden in a back room to surprise me in person on the podcast. It's that everyone knew this decision was made before Thanksgiving, except me. And he told everyone not to tell me yeah. when I flew to Philadelphia to be with my family because he wanted to tell me on the microphone. P.S. I hate surprises. So I'm mortified. Yeah. I remain mortified. I wish this footage and audio was thrown in a river or perhaps a bonfire, but I remain deeply I'm very, I, I'm, I'm very thankful. I guess. Okay. I'm still mad, but I'm very. I, I, I forgive, but I don't forget. We're gonna take a listen to this audio from our year-end oh pod with Sam that was recorded in November, so that you can hear the moment that Andy found out that his show is gonna be on TV. Look, this breaks the friends and family category. Oh, because it is. But th this is the problem with this show because this is a caveat: is it's not a show. It's just, it's just a pilot. Oh, but it's a really, really good one, and but I can't, I, you know, I can't put it on the list, right? Because you know, it's not necessarily, a, a, it's, it, it's not, it's, it's not picked up. Sam's talking about the I'm middle about spinoff, <laughs> the, one, the one about Sue Heck. Oh, yeah, right. ABC I mean, just passed on it. Yeah, I mean, look, it's called Briar Patch, and the performances are amazing. Yeah. Uh, Chris has seen Chris it. Chris has seen it. I've seen it. I gave some notes. Um, <laughs> so I do have to talk about this. The performances are amazing. Um, you know, the writing. Uh, <laughs> it's hit or miss. <laughs> the, the, the directing is amazing, and I'm just so excited. And, and it would have totally, totally, totally been on the number one list here if it had been a season of television. And, um, you know, I, I don't know why, I don't know why it's not a season of television. I mean, yet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you know, as of right now, it's just, Kai, you know, are you, just a one. Are you uh, getting that? I'm hearing like a buzz. That's just my discomfort with uh, praise. Sorry. I had to, I had to That was really something. nice. I had to, how to do? Oh wait, hold on a second. Wait what a the fuck? What, what is going on here? Hold on a second. What uh, the fuck? Wait, for, for some reason the network executives <laughs> at USA uh, are here. Alex Sepial, sit down, Alex. And then uh, Elise Henderson hey, is also here. Hey, Alex, so you guys? <laughs> I was just in the neighborhood. Well, I, I was here for the hot secession takes. I don't know if you guys uh, ever done that. Okay, all right, and um. So, wait a minute. So, so it's so funny that you guys walked in just <laughs> now because so <laughs> well, it because we I was just saying that if Briar Patch, you know, cuz it's just a pilot right now, but it, it, had it been a season of television, probably been would have been number 1. Mm. I'm just wondering, is there is there anything you know, you it's, could it, say, it's, say it's, that? it's a great pilot and pilots are nice, but uh we're really excited to announce that Briar Patch is uh, going to be a show on USA Network. Whoa! Oh. Wait, 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 are you the, the one that Andy Greenwald? Right? <laughs> That's the one. That one. Yeah. Since you're here, Alex, is um, what's the status of Treadstone? <laughs> wow, so, wow, this is insane. Wait, you, so this is a live pickup to yes. to see? Wow, has this I ever know. been done before? <laughs> I think we, we think we're making history here. Yes. This is podcast history. Yeah. Are you sure? You're absolutely. Yeah. You're this confident is, about this decision? Yeah. No, it, it, it's it's official. USA yeah. Network in association with uh, and Paramount and Paramount and Esmail Corp. Yeah. Well, yeah. Is yeah. it weird to want to throw up and cry at the same time? <laughs> 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 so it's good You're time going back to, to Albuquerque, Andy. <laughs> yeah. This is, I guess, the end of the Watch Podcast. <laughs> wow, guys. How do you feel, Andy, talk about like what's going on I feel like deeply nauseous. Should we put on a journey? Don't <laughs> <excited. laughs> Yeah, I am where is really... my YouTube? Well, I told you to 
it's not fair use. So I specifically, I, I, I disagree with you, Chris. I, I really wanted like Beautiful Day. Sweatshirts. Guys, if you're listening, please play Beautiful Day by you right. 2 to this moment right now. And as I Andy, am Andy, really losing you, it. No, talk about how you're feeling right now. What's going Andy, on? what's going through your mind? Yeah. <laughs> if this is what Super Bowl coaches must feel like. I feel totally overwhelmed and grateful and just feel like that was really fucking cruel. <laughs> I told you it's my, uh, it's my EP style. Uh, do you guys want the genuine response? Yes. This is yes. the dream well, of my whole— this is, this is yeah, No, it's good. That's why I'm ready to do it. This is the total dream of my life, and I can't believe I get to do it with you guys Aww. who have made this whole experience so amazing. I'm really honored. I'm really fucking excited. Awesome. And I'm really freaked out. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, how do you end these things again? I can't remember because I... Just great, great job, Ranskis. Wait, what is it? What I, is it, Andy? I, I, I mean, I, I don't, I, I don't, I, I, I know it, Chris. I'm trying to, I'm trying to, I'm trying to tee up Andy here because oh, this yeah. is. Oh, you want me to say it? Well, I mean, I think you are. This was a great job, Bransky. <laughs> <laughs> this is the best podcast <laughs> I've ever been a part of. <laughs> <laughs> Shit. All right, Greenwald, we're back. Tell me the thing you're most excited about doing right now, where it comes to the show. Is it? Getting back to Albuquerque and hitting all the restaurants you missed, or is sure. it getting to work with avowed Cowboys fan Jay Ferguson? What's Jesus, the top yeah. of your list? I think number one is no longer having to field signal messages from Sam Esmail about the status of the clip. Ever <laughs> just That's really going to free up a lot of time for me just to be more creative and you know be more productive in my job. I, I don't mean to sound ungrateful. Like this, I, I have to be clear. Like this is the dream of my lifetime, and this is the greatest thing. And I'm so happy. But I don't like surprises. I'm still reeling. Um, honestly, that everything has been great. But the most exciting thing, and and people who've been listening for a long time know this, and have heard me say this in different contexts. But writing is hard work and lonely work. And this adaptation of Briar Patch has existed. You know, I, I wrote the script two years ago and to be alone with it and to be, you know, be alone with the, the break of the season and the pitch for the whole season and the characters that I gave to the studio and then to the network to be alone with it was, you know, exciting, but also very daunting. And the most thrilling thing has been to have the thing that I always wanted, which is a writer's room. And we have six brilliant people in here with me. Um, and to be able to share both the burden and the opportunity of creating a story um, to bring their perspectives and points of view on the world and on the characters and just their own lives is it's everything that I want it to be. It's truly fun. It is a great joy and a great privilege. And that's that's been great. Have now, you adapted? Have you adopted Jay, David Milch's writing screenplays by speaking them out loud while lying on your back uh, style? I will say that I have been mostly vertical, but I do have a couch based room <laughs> uh-huh. because I know I know what's coming. Right. I do think that you also hit at one of the biggest issues here, which is uh, the brilliant Jay Ferguson, people know from Mad Men. We just recently talked about him on the Romanoffs. He is uh, one of the stars of the show. He is a, a true mensch. He's a wonderful guy. He is also a Dallas Cowboys fan to the point of abstraction. Like it is so disturbing. <laughs> and I couldn't say this on the, sh on the podcast, but when he, he came in to record ADR, which is when you do additional pickups, like for lines that got dropped or whatever, uh, when we were doing post and the Monday he was coming in was the day after the Cowboys beat the Eagles in Philadelphia. And I thought, well, at the very least he'll be in a good mood. And I did not expect he showed up to the studio on the universal lot wearing festoon head to toe in an official Dallas Cowboys Snuggie, um, <laughs> that actually went up past his big beard and he was so cozy in it and it was so gross. And then when he finally took it off, he was wearing also a Jersey a Cowboys jersey underneath it. And the fact that we can get along gives me hope for a divided nation. Like maybe the government can reopen. I know. Maybe Nancy and Donald can reach across the aisle. We have a couple of other things today. Uh, I guess I'll probably wind up having to mention this at the beginning, but uh, I talked to Hugo Blick, who is one of our nice. favorite TV creators. He made the new Netflix show Black Earth Rising, which is coming out on uh Friday, I guess, Thursday night, depending on how, how avidly you check Netflix. And so that's really exciting. That show's really, really, really interesting. And, you know, I'm sure we'll have a lot to say about that in the coming weeks. We talked so much about Honorable Woman. But uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you if you had any takes on the Oscar nominations, my guy. I know it's a little bit awkward now because you're you're on the other side of things. Yeah, right, right. You know, I'm in the Spider-Verse now. I felt 
Well, look, I'm thrilled about a couple things, right? Like I'm thrilled about Roma's recognition. I'm really surprised, heartened, and thrilled by the favorite being so highly recognized. That's the kind of movie that I just think is so brilliant and I was fully expecting for it to be ignored in the unfortunate way that, say, um, Beale Street was mostly ignored. But it, I, I guess I have two points. One is, what were they going to nominate for most for popular film had they kept that terrible idea? I think Qu- Quiet like, wh- Place and I think Crazy Rich Asians and uh, I think Endgame. I mean, I think Infinity War would have been there. I think that would you would have had... I, I wonder if they'd done popular movie... They would have done Best Picture, and it would have been Roma, Favorite, Vice, and one more. And then popular right. film would have been Bohemian, Quiet Place, Black Panther, Avengers, and you take your pick, Mary Poppins or something. Like, it would have been those five. Yeah. And then they would have had five artier films as the Best Picture. It's just so crazy and wrongheaded that, like, that they don't even understand their own industry to realize that nominating Black Panther for Best Picture next to Roma is a sign of a much healthier creative industry. Absolutely. You know, that, that that these are not in any way similar in terms of their content or even their potential reach or audience, certainly not in their box office, but in the sense of like successfully executing an artistic vision from start to finish. Those are good examples, you know, for this year and representative of a robust industry that can make both, right? Like that, I find that stuff much more cheering than the sort of desultory, like, I guess people, Bohemian Rhapsody is one of the best pictures of the year, which is it's sort of bizarre. And and then the, the Green Book thing, it just feels so deeply reactive. And maybe you can make a case that that nominating Black Klansman and Black Panther is is reactive too to, to, to other over to previous oversights in, in the Academy of the Culture, but it's bizarre. And it, but it, it's bizarre to me, but I guess I'm sure I know Sean Fantasy has spoken about this. And I know that you and Amanda had, I'm sure, a much more in depth, insightful conversation about this than whatever I'm offering now. But it definitely is reflective of a very fractured cultural psyche in this country right now. Yeah. Right? And, like, and, you know, I think that the Oscars are kind of, they remind me now at this point of like a, a massive sports franchise. They're definitely in need of some kind of like process style break down and build back up. And they just announced today that they're not going to be uh, having the best original song performed on the awards, nor are they going to be giving out a bunch of the technical side awards that I think people really, you know, people who actually care about the Oscars care about who wins those and and what happens when people win those. And I'm just, it's just increasingly seeming like no host, no musical performances, this kind of like underlying feeling of of what are we doing here that it needs kind of like a teardown and and reconstruction almost like i i don't really know i'm looking forward to it because i'm curious to see how it plays out but i'm not looking forward to it as an event as much as i used to it's super weird to me it it does seem to be especially without a host like it 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 does seem it, it seems to be in crisis and i say that because again weird flails like that brief briefly considered popular film category, it does seem like that they don't even know what their own value is anymore, which is particularly ironic considering the criticism that I kept making year after year when I had to review the Oscars as a show was that that aspect of it that always rankled me, the sort of like, we're movies and we matter. And here we're going to remind you why we matter. And that always felt weirdly insecure to me because you're the Oscars, you know, but clearly uh, they don't know why they matter. And they're very freaked out about if they will matter. And the response to that confusion seems to be giving, instead of giving a show, giving a shrug emoji, you know, like no hosts, no musical performances. That said, the only other thing I I wanted to mention, you know, snubs are, I don't know if snubs are always worth having the conversation, but Ethan Hawke not being nominated really is a bummer. Yeah. It really is a bummer. I mean, he is... He, he, by all accounts, you know, in his interview with our friend Zach Barron, he talked about how he really wanted it and would love it. His performance is incredible in First Reformed. First Reformed is one of the best movies of the year. It's a shame there wasn't room for him, um, although that movie was recognized for screenplay. Similarly, whatever you felt about If Beale Street Could Talk, Barry Jenkins is just an astonishing director, and particularly James Laxton, the cinematographer. I, yeah, I talked about that with, with Amanda, about how uh, disappointing it was that Laxton get, didn't get nominated. That movie is so beautiful. But, you know, look, this we're, have, we're saying that a minute after saying that a category like cinematography might not even be on the telecast. We don't know. I don't know if that's the case, but that's confusing. So what, what is, what is your dispatch from movie island? Because you, you know, as our audience knows, you go to movies, you may have more, I mean, you have a fresher take than I do. 
I think that I'm just more I like my thing was more about like why can't the capital of show business figure out how to put on a pageant, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and it just seems like they're tripping over themselves a little bit here. And I think I'm secretly dreading the next six weeks of Green Book. You know what I mean? And the idea that we're going to publicly litigate this. You you mentioned a couple weeks ago or last week, I think, about just kind of feeling bad that like Mahershala Ali is getting dragged through this uh, as he's going through this this process. And he's probably going to win supporting actor. But it'll be really fascinating to see the slings and arrows and whether or not it takes Green Book down from uh, from its its sort of perch, its assumed perch after the Golden Globes, because as of like Monday when I talked with Amanda on the big picture, I was looking at the betting markets and it seems like Roma and Quaron are are very heavy favorites. So that all the attention on Green Book might not result in a Green Book win. Yes, or, or that it really is. Or, or is this one of those situations where? You know, there's seven very different movies nominated, but that it does seem that people are going to really turn this into a binary and squat up, and it's either Roma or Green Book, right? Which is which is sort of industry or the past, which has happened in the past few years where there's just like you're either team this or you're team that. Yeah, I mean, does that leave the potential for like the favorite week winning, like sneaking? You know what I mean? Like something. That, I mean, unexpected. I don't understand the preferential ballot enough to know that. You know what I mean? Because I think that right. there's all that stuff with the thing that gets voted second the most could be the thing that wins in the end, if, especially if there's a binary like you're talking about between uh, Green Book and the uh, the next favorite movie. I personally think Roma is going to win, and I think Quaron's going to win. I think Green Book will probably win screenplay. Yeah, because the thing to... I mean, last year was sort of weird with the fish-fucking movie, but in general, like... <laughs> you got, you got a Kyle Henry, laugh out of that. <laughs> It's, that's, that's, that is the most precious currency in Hollywood for all of the hand wringing over it and all of this sort of like, oh, the Academy is so old and so out of touch and all the voters really liked was, you know, uplifting biopics or they like, uh, you know, the old fashioned sort of uh, white savior vision of race relations that is Green Book. Moonlight won Best Picture like that really happened. You know, the, the, the Oscars do get it right sometimes, you know, yeah. uh, and that is kind of an amazing thing in and of itself. I, I wish that this whole season, we, we've spent the last few years in, in award season sort of talking about how dispiriting it is that the subtext has just become the only text, that the campaign season and the backstabbing and backbiting that's always been part of it is now the story in order to fuel the 24-7 interest in it. I, I sort of feel like it's even worse that this this ceremony this year feels like an asterisk because they've given up on it. You know, they haven't, in the sense of no host, no this, no that, it just feels already tainted even when a movie as masterful as Roma or as brilliant as The Favorite is going to be recognized. Even if it's not recognized with a trophy, those movies should be celebrated. Before we get going, Andy, I think we should probably do a little bit of housekeeping. Uh, so probably people are wondering what the announcement of your show means for the future of our show. And I, a- I, I want to I get in front of that train, Chris, and I want to let people know that I will be available for House of Carbs episodes whenever. <laughs> like, at the drop of a hat. Don't, let Joe it, House. don't think I don't notice... That, like, you have all these, like, scheduling caveats and, like, I can do it on the Harvest Moon on a Wednesday. And then when House is like, I saw an episode of Chopped, would you like to discuss? You're here with bells on. I I will come in on a weekend to talk about (laughs) Top Chef with Joe House. I'm like, hey, man, did you watch Sex Education? You're like, I have daughters, sir. And then when it's just like, House is like, some guy made a bacon, egg, and cheese and a croissant on Chopped. You're like, please, let's do a long-form podcast about it. I feel like I'm stewing in wet chicken when I try to have these conversations with you. You know, I, I want to talk about cooking level. with you. I'll talk about food all day long. It's just going to be on my terms. You That's know, fair. me and my wife have That's been fair. making that Allison Roman coconut stew. Oh. Uh. And you did the stew. Hashtag the stew. The stew. The first one was great. Then we tried to make double the proportions because we were like, let's have it for like the week. And it got watery, man. There's something There's about something. my kitchen that just <laughs> induces water into my my cooking. And when I say There's my cooking, my, my wife's cooking. Maybe it's the humidity. <laughs> uh, no, I would not imagine a real interruption in the usual banter that you've come to know and love from the Watch Podcast. There will be times where Andy's not available. There will be times where Andy's just checking in and dropping some mind jewels on us rather than participating in the full uh, rigors that, that you, you know, of, of the podcast. But for the most part, I think you're still going to be my partner. Yes. 
Um, small caveat to that, no. And I'm sorry to break it to you on the air. Uh, no, I, you are absolutely right. Um, I think everyone should know that... Um, I was spit water out. <laughs> that, uh, let, me, let, me, uh, let me throw a little water on the proceedings. Sam Esmail is a believer in Briar Patch. He's an executive producer of Briar Patch, but his true passion is being the ombudsman of the watch. And I don't think he would have allowed this to happen if he knew it would interrupt this podcast permanently. Um, as Chris said at the beginning, I am in Hollywood. I'm in the office. We're in the writer's room. I'm nearby. I still have takes and opinions and thoughts. You know, how my opinions about shows or what I say about them, how that changes now that I'm doing this full time. Like, we can talk about that too, but I am here. I, as Chris said, I might be remote. I might just be checking in. We don't go into production until May, at which point I'll be in Albuquerque. And I'm sure you'll be visiting me, right, buddy? Absolutely. I think I'm like week every other weekend, maybe. Now, Kaya, I, I, I'll, I'll get a Nintendo Switch. It'll be fine. <laughs> Our producer, Kaya. She just told me before we went on the air here that her favorite piece of internet content currently is the Facebook group thread about who should replace you, <laughs> which includes, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, Kaya, includes Jason Mantzoukas and Sam Esmail, who I think are, are somewhat busy, uh, that your absence means the end of the watch, which is a tough beat for your boy, right. and a variety of other suggestions. You know what? The Ringer is open for business, man. So if anybody out there thinks that they can do better than Andy or me, for that matter, by all means, there's that Facebook thread. Kaya's definitely reading, even if my self-esteem can't handle it. I am pitching hard for the gritty reboot of this podcast. I think this podcast <laughs> needs an origin story. I think there's Miles Teller up, and Ansel up, there's a There's a thread that's like Chris and Andy are aging out and they need to bring in like young blood to take over. You know, honestly, sometimes the way I feel about this podcast is the same way I felt about moving to Park Slope, Brooklyn, at age 22, which is it's actually low-key smart to move to, move to a place that's pre-washed. Yeah. Because then there you never have any waves to ride. And I kind of feel like people who signed up for this podcast, you know, they can tell. Like, our dedication to the, you know, uh, a, a table of contents, let's say, or recurring bits – they know they, they they know what they've signed up. They waver, yeah, exactly. Service in good stead. Uh, we love doing the show. We do the show when we talk to each other on the phone, even if there are microphones. So this isn't going anywhere. There may be some interruptions, but we're going to see how it goes, and and it's going to be very exciting. I'm very excited, and I uh, and in in all honest, all honesty, I'm extremely extremely grateful and appreciative of you, buddy, and the space that you've given me to do this, and the accommodations you've made. Um, you know, the way that you pretended not to have taken down notes on the guest hosts or host replacements. I thought that was very well played. Um, but really, you, you, you've, you've let me do this, which is amazing. Um, and uh, I, I, I'm going to return the favor. I'm here. And if people do have questions about this process, you know, I'm, I'm excited to talk about it. This has been a roller coaster and a lot of new things and a lot of fun things. And, um, you know, however much I can show what's going on behind the curtain without, without giving it all. Without away, alienating Cowboys Twitter. <laughs> I we, I talked to Jay yesterday for the first time since both our seasons ended, and I felt like the off season is our on season. Like we can be friends now again, right? Because it's 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 otherwise pretty gnarly. Um, all right, Andy, we're gonna get to this interview with Hugo Blick in just a minute. After a word from our sponsors, congratulations! I know I speak on behalf of all the Watch listeners in that it could not have happened to a more deserving party. Thanks, buddy. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Baranskis. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Microsoft Surface. The new Microsoft Surface Pro 6 can help you get things done, whether you're on the field or running a business. Take Brian Arakpo and Michael Griffin, two former NFL teammates who have opened a cupcake shop. With the Microsoft Surface Pro, they can do everything they need from setting schedules to creating promotions for social media and designing new flavors. Plus, it's light, super fast, and has a great battery life. Brian and Michael are proving that you can tackle all your passions with the power and speed of the new Surface Pro 6. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Roman. With two-thirds of guys experiencing noticeable hair loss by age 35, most guys assume that losing their hair is this inevitable thing as they age. Some don't care, some shave their heads, some embrace hats. But what they don't know is there are FDA-approved medications designed to stop hair loss and even regrow hair. That's why we're excited to partner with our new sponsor, Roman. Roman makes it easy to get safe, FDA-approved hair loss treatment all from your phone or computer. And when you go to GetRoman.com watch, your online visit is free. Consult with a U.S. licensed physician through their secure online platform. No awkward conversations with receptionists or reading bad magazines in the waiting rooms. Once your doctor ensures the treatment will be safe and effective for 
for you, Roman's dedicated pharmacy can ship your medication to you with free two-day shipping and discreet packaging. If you're noticing unwanted hair loss, starting treatment early is key and Roman can help. And today, Roman is giving watch listeners a free online visit at GetRoman.com slash watch. That's GetRoman.com slash watch for a free visit to get started. Go to GetRoman.com slash watch. All right, guys, thanks for listening to The Watch. We're about to get into my interview with Hugo Blick, the writer and director of the new Netflix show, Black Earth Rising. Now, you may know Hugo's name because Andy and I say it all the time. Why? Because we're huge fans of his work. He's done two of my favorite shows over the last uh, 10 years or so, which are Shadow Line, which is mostly a show people in the UK are familiar with, which starred Chiwetel Ejiofor, Rafe Spall, Christopher Eccleston, uh, and it was just this incredible crime drama. And then in 2014, Hugo did The Honorable Woman, starring Maggie Gyllenhaal, which was one of me and Andy's favorite shows from the last few years. It's been a couple of years since then, obviously, and he's been hard at work on this show, Black Earth Rising, which I can safely say is unlike anything I think I've seen on television before. It is one of the most intellectually challenging and politically dense shows I've seen in a, I, I, maybe ever. I, I don't know. The little density and the uh, volume of ideas at work here is going to be a challenge, but I think a huge reward, a very rewarding challenge for viewers. This is the story of a woman named Kate Ashby, who is played by Michaela Cole, who works as uh, an investigator for a London law office. And she's brought into the world of the International Criminal Court at The Hague, where she is working on a case involving the Rwandan genocide. And it brings up issues of her own heritage and of her own past and of her uh, her own identity. And also has huge questions about international law, colonialism, and what it means to say you're from a place. And, you know, in typical Hugo Blick fashion, the writing is top-notch, the story is gripping, and the performances across the board from Michaela Cole, from John Goodman, are are just really, really captivating. I think that if people can put aside some time and put down the phone and watch this, they will be heavily rewarded by this show. It's just, it's not like other TV. And I'm really glad that we still have voices like this out there doing shows like this, making television that's this thought-provoking. So let's get into my conversation with Hugo Blick. I'm now joined by Hugo Blick, who is responsible for two of my favorite television shows this decade, The Shadow Line, which came out in 2011, and The Honorable Woman, which Andy and I lost our heads about a couple of years ago. And Hugo has a new show coming on Netflix this week. It's called Black Earth Rising, and I'm so pleased that he was able to join me today. Hugo, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, it's a great pleasure. Um, I remember about four years ago when The Honorable Woman came out, listening to your discussion with Andy and... uh, Yeah, no, it it, it educated me. Yeah, I found it to be a deeply moving and also deeply thought-provoking show, Honorable Woman, and I feel the same way about Black Earth Rising. So I was wondering for our Mm -hmm. listeners, if you could just sort of, on the kind of Hugo Blick chronology, the timeline, after you're done, Honorable Woman, where does Black Earth Rising come from? What are you reading? What are you thinking about that leads you to this story? Well, it came partly from the research that was uh, into the Honorable Woman, because as sort of like deep background early research, uh, uh, I obviously came across the Nuremberg trials. For those uh, listeners that aren't aware of the Honorable Woman, it was a, uh, took it was about the Palestinian-Israeli conflict today and, and the inheritance of that for individuals involved in the story. So when I was doing the, uh, the research into that, I came across the Nuremberg trials, and I sort of twigged to myself, oh, it would be interesting to look into how international justice has been uh, institutionalized formally uh, in the years and decades beyond the Nuremberg trials. And so on the completion of The Honorable Woman, I went back to have a look at it, and that's where my trail began. You get done with Honorable Woman. Is there a part of you that's look? Was was? Do you think about your choices when you're writing these things in terms of? Well, I want to do something that feels lighter or heavier or darker. Or was this just well, where sure. you're? I mean, no, um, you know, it's a good question because I thought that the the shadow line had a a, a sort of mordant wit to its uh, to its spine, as it were, as we went through that story with those characters. But you're absolutely right that with uh, the Honorable Woman and now Black Earth Rising, there is a, 
um, yeah, a geopolitical heft to the whole thing, which um, makes me wonder whether I should make a comedy next time. <laughs> <laughs> well, you always try to do something like Death of Stalin. That was <laughs> that's pretty lighthearted. Yeah, that's true. No, no, true. You could always have something to say with something comedic as Amando did with that particular movie very well. When you're working on something like Black Earth Rising and there's obviously a density of information, I'm really curious about how you write something like this. And I, I guess I've been thinking a lot about this because I've been reading a lot about William Goldman since he passed away and his ability yeah. to synthesize such dense amounts of information, especially with all the president's men, and make it such a, an interesting, compelling piece of drama, which I do think you've really done here with Black Earth Rising because you have identified such an amazing uh, central character. But can you talk mm. to me a little bit about where does the character, where do the characters start to emerge when you're doing all this research? Yeah, sure. I, I think the thing that does give me the spine to these kind of what we just previously described as kind of heavyweight subjects is the emotional vacuum at the source of the lead character or the relationships therein. So, you know, the, the big spread of the geopolitics is how those characters have interacted in the past and are about to within our story. And obviously they have kind of big lives that touch quite big issues. But the reason that it means anything to us is because right at the, the, the center and at the heart is pretty much one individual's vacuum. I mean, in, in essence, both the Honorable Woman and Black Earth Rising have at their source the idea of what a secret is and whether a secret is held by the individual or hidden from the individual that they need to find out. So it is a quest motif that these individuals have. And then because of whatever caused that vacuum of a secret, that usually has some kind of psychological dynamic to the character, that central character's expression, which gives them the quirk of their individuality. And in Black Earth Rising, it was the fact that she had an identity vacuum to her past, the character played by Michaela Cole called Kate Ashby, which we needed to, she needs to self-examine. And it's as if she almost goes on a, a journey of, of self-explored therapy, knocking against characters in which she begins to question why she reacts to these individuals and or events in the way she does and test her conversational style with that so that once she hears it back, so she'll sort of say, don't expect me to behave the way others do. And then someone will come back and say, well, I don't. It's just that you behave strangely there. And she begins to understand herself more by the way in which she echoes the questions to the characters that she comes into conflict with. And then we go through that journey towards a bigger whole, yeah. which is where the geopolitics comes right. in. Right. Her, her vacuum becomes a collective, you know, our, uh, exactly. basically, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, our vacuum. But by source, by essence, it has to be that individual need. And it's the individual need to self-identify, to reconcile both to the past, uh, it's that Faulkner phrase, isn't it? That the past is never dead. Yeah. It's not even past. And you know what? I didn't understand what that meant when I first came across it. It's an intriguing idea. But actually, I think what it means is in order to armor yourself for your future, you have to know your past completely so that therefore you are a complete individual at the point of present, being in the present. One of the fascinating parts, especially about early in the season, is this debate that various characters have about who that you is that you're talking about. Who that you is that gets to decide what is history, what is justice, what gets to be forgotten, what needs to be remembered forever. And you you put that on Front Street. You, you definitely foreground that argument. How important was that argument, not necessarily to get out of the way early in the season, but to at least put on the chessboard because it's it's essentially the first scene of the entire series. It is. I mean, you sort of got to go straight for, you know, you've got to kill your darling straight up. What is this story going to be about? And in some ways, what isn't it going to be about? And is it about post-colonialism? Yes, it is. Is it about international justice? Yes, it is. Is it about the failings of both? Yes, it is. Is it also about some of the productive benefits of at least the reach of international justice? Yes, it is. So we're going to, by the first moments of this story set up where the nuance, where the gray area of the truth of our, our destination is going to explore and travel. 
So you you, you got to get it up there to begin with. But I think my real purpose was that I don't know. I, I you know, but my my story was about the pursuit of the aftermath and legacy of trauma, both on an individual and institutional scale. And obviously, the societal scale of the Rwandan genocide was a million people being terrifyingly murdered due to circumstances with which the West were both complicit in this construction of the colonial system and, and removed by the blindness of not seeing that it was going to happen so that it did, and it blindsided the West. But then I was interested in the aftermath of that. So what happened to that society after the genocide? And did that society do things that we should have been more scrutinous of? And have they done things that we should be in the West more scrutinous of? Because are we in danger of being blind up to the lead up to an event? And now also 25 years later, blind to some of the curtailments that has happened within that society as a consequence of those terrible events. And I think that was something that I was really interested in exploring. Can you tell me a little bit about working with Michaela Cole? Because I think for our our viewers, they may know her from Chewing Gum. And she's obviously, you know, an incredible creative mind on, on her own. And what that creative relationship between the two of you is like in terms of developing this character of of Kate? Well, what was so strange was that she fit the character like a glove, which I couldn't really, the character, I couldn't have, have, have expected. I saw, we would, it was difficult to cast. It had been taking a while to cast because there's so much fire inside this character. So, so much sort of, it's like a nuclear power station of in her eyes, really, of unexpressed frustration and anger and vacuum. And it was really difficult to find someone that was going to kind of portray that in what is still necessarily quite a still screen persona, screen acting persona. And Michaela not only got there as a sort of professional, because she is a strong screen actor professional, but I think that something about Kate's expression as a character and the way in which she expressed herself with others around her really fitted the way in which Michaela explores subjects and issues surrounding her own life. So I think that it really did marry well, both character and Michaela, to the way in which each kind of uh, interacted with their world. In terms of production, did you shoot in sequence? Because I would imagine that shooting this... in sequence. I mean, what was interesting is that the story still managed to evolve as we went. So the discoveries that I made, particularly as we headed into Africa, I was able to reincorporate into the script in a way that perhaps I hadn't done in the past. I tried to allow everybody that had these significant roles to play to, as much as possible, take a learning curve towards the same destination as their characters so that we could adjust as we went through. You've had the good fortune to work with so many great actors over over your career, but especially over the last 10 years, Shadowline has one of my favorite ensembles with actually one of my favorite yeah. TV performances uh, in recent memory, which is the Rafe Spall performance. You yeah. worked with Maggie Gyllenhaal and so many great actors on Honorable Woman. But I, I, I have to ask you what it was like to work with John Goodman because I, I've had... I've been able to talk to people who've worked with John Goodman and they all just seem to be in awe. And this is a slightly more measured performance from him than maybe a, a Big Lebowski kind of role, but it nonetheless is sure. breathtaking. Isn't it? Because what was so surprising, John is not a big talker, and that's fine. Every actor has a different sort of method of work. And, and the best a director can do really is just to intuit what their best method of work is for themselves. Some people love to talk. Some people love to joke. Some people love to concentrate very hard. And John likes to concentrate, and he doesn't like to talk much. So what you kind of get is I got very early the understanding that you're going, you're going to get like two really inventive takes quite soon within the scene. So go in for the close-ups quite soon. You'll get two very live performances in any, you know, he's always going to be good, but in something that's really happening in those kind of frames. 
And they may not be the same. They'll be quite different. And you kind of go, that's good. Okay, on a daily basis, an incremental basis, you kind of go, I see, okay, so that's fine. Everything is alive, and I get it. But we're not talking the characters through much. And then we get all the way through 12-week shoot for John, and we get to the end. Thank you very much. Off you go. And then I go into the edit at the end of the shoot, and I start tapestrying the whole thing. And I realized that he is a kind of a craftsman of real, like, like a tailor to mm-hmm. a suit. He has crafted a role because of those limited moments that he was giving you that actually sewed the character together with such dexterity that you get to the end of those eight hours, which is what it is. And he has such a beautiful final scene, a heartbreaking final scene in episode eight, that you realize that this guy somehow, through that silence, has tapestried the whole journey of that character. So he never played one note twice. It was like a incredibly carefully constructed piece of jazz piano. And I was amazingly impressed. What an amazing testament to his his stuff. That's great. I was curious, uh, was this a difficult show to sell? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I mean, they sort of know that I'm a kind of slightly eccentrically odd individual <laughs> that sort of tries to engage in kind of quite out there geopolitical issues. But I suppose to a certain degree in these times today where our societies, both in the UK and in the US and elsewhere, are looking ever increasingly inward and away from international affairs. I guess part of my, not my pitch, but my conversation to Netflix and the BBC was to say, you know, if we are as a society doing that, we're looking inwards to our own concerns, we're literally trying to build walls to keep the outside away. It doesn't actually mean that the outside has gone anywhere. And our relationship to the outside remains because historically, because economically, because currently, if you consider Rwanda at the moment, 33% of its economy comes from external sources. A great deal of that is the US. So we really have to consider that we still have massive effects on international environment. And therefore, we should really, hopefully, engage in what the after effects of that, the aftermath. And the responsibilities that come with it. So that was kind of the pitch. And and I guess they let me get away with it. You touch on something early in the season that I, I think has been really fascinating as anyone would find it who's followed the news in whatever capacity, whatever the way whatever way that means, over the last few years especially, which is that news is happening seemingly at such a pace these days that something that would seemingly take up weeks, if not months, of discussion and, and, uh, and thought years ago is now the third thing that happened on a Wednesday. And uh, that seems to be almost at the heart of what you're talking about earlier in the season, where this is something that some people have moved on from. This is something that some people yeah. want to move on yeah. from. No, you're right. I mean, you are right. And sometimes, you know, as an as a creative, I, you know, I, I do sometimes feel a bit guilty about even doing, asking people to look, you know, because mm-hmm. you kind of go, you know, are you right to be asking people to sort of trouble themselves about things that feel remote? But let me just put it in some kind of context, because it is so cyclical. In between April and, and uh, June 1994, with 100 days of, uh, of the Rwandan genocide, during the hottest spot of that occurrence, and that was the most intensive systematic killing in 100 days in the 20th century, if not in in modern history. During that time was the, the, you and I really only remember that geographical moment, the geopolitical moment, because there was that Ford Bronco with with the juice uh, on the the motorway, with O.J. Simpson on the motorway. That's what we remember during those months while those killings were going on. And I guess that if that's happening in 1994, and then we sort of got very guilty about that, and Clinton got very guilty about that, and you know, and we did involve ourselves with the reconstruction of Rwanda afterwards, but now it's 25 years later, and although there's some fantastic things that have happened in that um, society, there's also a reduction of political space. There's also some aspects of political assassination that's been tried at the moment down in, in South Africa that's really pretty nasty. And if 
we were blind before. Are we blind again now? Maybe it shouldn't be at the top of the news, but maybe we should also involve ourselves in it. Yeah, and that, and that's the sort of fascinating moment that we've arrived at in society where long-form television might be able to ask those questions somewhat more coherently than the news media just because of what's consuming the news media now, which I don't necessarily blame anyone who works no, in... No, I think that's good. I mean, I think that is absolutely true. Sometimes, you know, I, uh, I, I'm, I, all of us in a creative environment are quite careful kind of to be you know, uh, self-deprecating and saying, actually, it's, you know, it's just entertainment. And you know what? It is. It's very, very rare that the needle of, of, of progress gets nudged in, in any forward direction by artistic endeavor. But that said, if you are going to be a creative, if you are going through to motivations and individuals and societies and how we interact, well, then any act of creativity is political and it is about politics. And therefore, to some degree, I think that we shouldn't apologize about that and we shouldn't shy from that. I'm not necessarily saying that anybody's going to wake up and go, good golly, what's happening in the DRC now? And let's all roll our sleeves up and get in there. But if it doesn't, at least if it doesn't shift the needle, but it actually makes you pause for a moment and go, oh, yeah, because of that human character, that woman that we've just traveled with and those characters who have interacted with her in their failings and their successes. Oh, okay, so I know a little bit more about that world, the gray and nuanced area about that world. As hopefully we knew a little bit more about the Palestinian-Israeli conflict in The Honorable Woman by its end. There aren't answers there, but there's an exploration of question marks, which I hope we just offer a better understanding of our position. Because, you know, it isn't about, I think, a critic could say, oh, you know, what are you, this white guy, talking about these black issues? Well, the thing is, that would be a, a real error of, of reading of the show, because it, 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 it is about the West's relationship with Africa. It's not really the two-way street of Africa's relationship with us. It's about the reach and limitations of justice and international justice as we offer it to them. Yes. And that's its purpose. It's coming from this side of the, of the divide, as it were, and that's why I've written it. Well, I highly encourage people to, to check out Black Earth Rising. And while I, I admire what you're saying about art not necessarily being able to move the needle in one way or the other, but I do think what you're right, it, 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 what it does is starts a ripple effect of engagement and people thinking yeah. about these things after the fact. And that's the most important thing. Hugo, thank you so much for calling in. Oh, uh, sure. And thank you for making such incredible shows. Oh, well, thank you. I look forward to uh, maybe meeting in person one day. Absolutely. <laughs>